The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Elon Musk drives down a highly unusual road to take Tesla private, and the likely new prime minister of Pakistan, former cricket star Imran Khan's first task is to go hat in hand for money to bail out the country. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hey, Anthony. Good day. Later in the program, we're going to hand it off to our colleagues in Asia. But first, we're going to turn to the latest stir caused by Tesla's Elon Musk. Yesterday, out of the blue, he tweeted the following, quote, am considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. Okay, Anthony, what was going through your mind when you saw this tweet go through your, your feed? Well, I've got to be honest, the first thought, just looking at the price tag, the first one is like, what are you doing this on Twitter for? Oh, hang on, 420 it's a joke about weed. It has to be. 420 is that is this well-known number for marijuana. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously getting this from my boss, not from anyone else. Um, I had to ask, you know, ask him about it. But yeah, it, it sounded like just a, another one of Musk's jokes that he makes. And I, you know, he did one about going bankrupt a few months ago with him passed out with a, you know, on one of the hoods of one of his cars. Um, but then it quickly became apparent that he was actually, it was actually him tweeting it and he was being... Uh, honest and serious about actually wanting to do this. And he has said in the past, look, we'd be better off as a private company. Okay. So um, he comes out with this tweet. He goes on a blog post and talks to his uh, employees about this. Um, all that said, it's still highly, highly unusual how he went about this. And, yeah. and um, you know, he is known for going on Twitter and doing like bonkers things. But it, it is sort of like, wait a minute, this is beyond all the other crazy things you have done. This is like serious. And, you know, how is this thing going to work? Because your company is bonkers. Yeah. So let's take us through the process of, because this isn't like, because when I was thinking about it, it was like, oh, this is Michael Dell when he tried to take, um, or when he did take Dell private. But this is a whole other situation, a whole other yeah, bag of worms. Exactly. So why is this different? Well, the, the big thing, the, the, the main difference between this and just about any other buyout that we've ever covered is that Tesla has never made money. Um, okay. Right? Why, so, okay, now why is that important? Because there are a lot of companies out there, Snap doesn't really make yeah. money, I mean, that don't make money that are public. So why does this matter? Well, I mean, he became a public, this became a public company eight years ago, and the idea was, look, you're in a capital-intensive business, uh, and you want to go from making just one sports car the, uh, to making yeah, the Roadster, to making uh, the S, and then the uh, then became the X, and now the Model 3, and more. He's got more plans. So, you know, it's the car industry. You need a lot of money, um, and you want to do it with electric batteries, which no one's really managed to do in, as a mass market before. So if you go public, then you can show how you're progressing, and you can tap the market investors for more money, which he's done on a regular basis. Uh, and he's also going to the debt markets as well, and convertible bond markets. It all makes raising capital easier. And it is a bit strange, you know, that you've got he starts off with the uh, let's go public when we're losing money. And just as he's on the cusp, according to him, of making money sustainably next year and maybe even late this year, he's taking the company, he's talking about taking the company private. I mean, it's, it's a very sort of topsy-turvy world he's, he's creating here. But because the company isn't earning money um, and isn't earning also what's called EBITDA, his earnings are before you take out interest and taxes and depreciation and amortization. So it's, way, it's the way that um, bankers and financiers look at how to 
raise money for a company. So if you've got an EBITDA of X amount, then you can borrow Y amount. And normally right. and that's going to be that four, five, six times okay. the EBITDA. There is Te- a ratio. Tesla doesn't have any. It's, yeah. it's negative EBITDA this year, probably next year as well. I looked out at what some analysts are expecting for up to 2020, even beyond that, actually, where you get into pie-in-the-sky numbers. But even if you were to use 2022 numbers, you could probably only raise at six times that $35 billion. I say only. It's a lot of money. But A, it's probably impossible because well, no and, bank's going to look at that. And how much is it? What's the enterprise value of this company? Uh, well, if you just look at the stock, that's about $80 billion, depending on how many shares are included. Okay, so so in short, like the chances of banks touching this are well, tiny. yeah, t- touching it in any significant way, right. are pretty tiny. You're just talking about very the twenty five, thirty five billion number is ridiculous. Even though I admit that, but the way they have to do this, I think, is by what I'm going to call a venture buyout. So instead of looking for debt, you look for other equity investors. So the Saudis came in yesterday with what two billion dollars worth, or said they bought built a two billion dollar stake. SoftBank has already invested in Uber and General Motors autonomous units. It's got a $100 billion fund almost out there that could go into this. And you could look at other investors as well to put in equity. Tesla's already looking at China, for example, to finance the Shanghai plant it wants to build there. So there's a lot of private money sloshing around, basically. Yeah, is what exactly. Okay. So let, let, let's just even just think about this even further. I mean, Musk has been a terrible steward of a public company. I mean, we've discussed this on several podcasts before. Uh, he's out there, you know, mouthing off on Twitter, all sorts of stuff that he should not be saying yeah. as, as the you know chief executive of a public company. Um, you know, there are all these like he's, he's yelling at analysts saying he does. He clearly doesn't want to be doing earnings calls. Um, he it's just like a litany of things. His corporate board is ridiculous. Yeah. His brother's on it. It's uh, he has all other kinds of directors that have all these sort of weird ties. The the board itself didn't respond to his tweet. It took him a full day to come out with some measly mouth statement mm. about yeah we're kind of thinking about this and you know they had to you know scramble to get the few independent directors they have <laughs> to, to put their name to this thing. So it just seems like kind of a joke. Uh, that said, do you think that? This company should be private, and if you're an investor, would you want to take the deal? Um, yeah, look, I, I think this is a terrible company to be on the public markets. So, for all the reasons you listed. So, you know, just a month or so ago, Musk went on Twitter and called someone a paedophile, uh, one of the uh, rescuers for the of the of the Thai soccer team trapped in the caves, um, and that's a a, a, le- a potential legal risk. And also, it looks terrible from a social perspective right. as well. You look at all the other CEOs and other executives who've got in a lot of trouble for, for, for this kind of thing, and worse, obviously. Um, the board said nothing. The board is a very interesting example of um, a pack, a, what I would call a stuffed or a packed board. So you're right, his brother Kimball is on there. There's, it's a nine-person board. So when you think, okay, who's signing this letter that came out this morning, which basically, as you said, said nothing. It said, we're looking at... Uh, what we do next, we're talking about it, and he told us, Musk told us last week. Well, you've got six people on that list, right? Why is that? Musk can't take part. Uh, Musk's brother can't take part because he's obviously linked to Musk in more ways than one. Um, Steve Jervison, one of the board members, can't take part because he's, he's been... AWOL. Sus- he's Well, he's been suspended because he was kicked out of his firm last year for, um, you know, bad behavior of the, of the um, social and personal kind. Um and then, really, of those six, three of them are in various other ties to Musk. So 
they're either on the SpaceX board. One of them was CFO of Solar City, another one of his companies for seven years that Tesla bought in another right. Weird rather, thing when he rather fudgy together. corporate right. governance deal a couple of a couple of years ago. So you, you basically got three people who I would call independent. Um, although the other three would probably get scraped through on NYSE rules. But yeah, it's it's not a good looking board. So yeah, why have it as a public company? Good riddance to it from the public markets. Take it private and sort it out and come back when you're grown up. Yes, that's that's a great way to end this <laughs> um, because it's borderline irresponsible what he's doing. So it's probably better if shareholders take their money and let him do what he needs to do. I'm Una Galani in Mumbai, and I'm joined by our China columnist, Chris Bedell, to talk about the potential fallout from Pakistan's recent election. Former cricket star Imran Khan is likely to be sworn in as prime minister in the coming days. He has grand ambitions to stamp out corruption and improve the lives of the poor. But his top priority will be to negotiate a bailout for the $300 billion economy. Chris, China is partly responsible for the current predicament as the giant infrastructure products that form its Belt and Road program have driven up imports. If Imran Khan turns to the International Monetary Fund for help, where will that leave Pakistan's relationship with Beijing? Yeah, so I think it's going to get very complicated very quickly. Um, so Pakistan needs quite a bit of money. Uh, the officials are talking about somewhere in the range of $12 billion, perhaps even more. Um, that's a lot of capital that they're going to need. I mean, realistically, at this point, probably only the International Monetary Fund, China, Saudi Arabia, or, or some combination of those three are going to be able to lend uh, that degree of capital. Um, and the issue is really, as you mentioned, it's it's a lot of these Chinese projects and Chinese lending. So um, the Chinese have backed something called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. It's a $60 billion roughly collection of infrastructure projects. It's a huge component of the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which President uh, Xi Jinping is heading. So um, the idea is that a lot of these projects may have come on pretty onerous terms. Uh, we don't know a lot because there's a lot of opacity surrounding these deals. Um, but for instance, the Wall Street Journal reported that some of the power plants that are involved might uh, involve something like a government guarantee of 34% rates of return in U.S. dollars uh, over three decades. So that's that's obviously quite steep. Um, and it's uh, it's an issue because a lot of outsiders that contribute to the IMF, notably the United States, don't want an IMF rescue to essentially bail out Chinese lenders. Um, so U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo last week explicitly warned about that possibility. Um, and now it's, it's worth noting, I mean, China and Pakistan have both dismissed those concerns, um, but... The Chinese embassy in Pakistan took a very unusual step to uh, essentially rebut a Wall Street Journal article. Pakistan's foreign office has warned its officials not to talk about CPEC. So you can tell it's it's a very touchy subject. God, that sounds like a, a real mess. I mean, but but this doesn't feel like it's the first time we've seen problems with the sort of the opacity around Chinese lending. I mean, is is the pushback across the Asian region to Chinese uh, money flowing into their countries. Is, is that getting stronger? Yeah, I think I think it clearly is. Uh, so, I mean, the biggest recent case that we've seen has been Malaysia, where you have a new government in there and um, the, the new government has essentially frozen more than $20 billion worth of Chinese-backed infrastructure projects. Uh, some of it is, is currently going into renegotiations. Um, and I think we even saw 
you know, going back as far as 2015, when you had a new government in Sri Lanka, um, again, in an upset victory, like, like we saw in Malaysia, um, and Chinese, the role of Chinese lending in Sri Lanka has been a very hotly contested issue kind of ever since then. Um, and even in places where we haven't seen really a, a significant change of hands um, in, in the government, like in Myanmar, um, even it seems like in Nepal, you, you do start to see some of these, uh, let's say, second thoughts about Chinese lending and on what the terms are and how much money some of these countries are taking. Yeah, I think there was definitely a pickup in the pushback when Aung San Suu Kyi came to sort of quasi-power in, in Myanmar. Um, I, I remember that quite clearly. I mean, but, but can I ask a stupid question? I mean, why is Chinese lending so opaque? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier for everybody if they were just transparent about this stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and there's, I think there's a few reasons. So first, unlike, um, unlike in the US or the UK, where you have these uh, consolidated development or aid agencies that were created around the 60s, uh, China doesn't really have any kind of consolidated foreign aid body like that. It's, it's split across various ministries, even across state companies. Um, and these bureaucratic players, for lack of a better term, are, are very reluctant to kind of share data with each other. Um, so that's one reason. And another reason is that, um, you know, foreign aid isn't especially popular with taxpayers really anywhere in the world. It's, it's obviously a pretty hot topic in, um, in many parts of the develop, developed world today. So uh, despite all the kind of hoopla that you get about Belt and Road and despite how much the Chinese government is promoting it, there's, there's not a lot of reason to think that it's necessarily more popular with Chinese taxpayers than it is with anywhere else, anywhere else in the world. Um, so you do get occasional rumblings of discontent. And the, the idea here is that maybe, maybe Chinese officials don't want to necessarily um, become more transparent about how much they're lending or on what terms. Um, if that is going to kind of rile public opinion, um, and, and right, I mean, I, I mean, I guess you know, China is still essentially an emerging market with, um, you know, lots of things that it needs to spend money on itself. So it's kind of spending heavily overseas, but it's probably quite controversial, I imagine. That, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a variation of the same argument that you hear elsewhere of we we should be spending that money at home. We shouldn't be spending it abroad. Um, but there's there's also kind of another uh, wrinkle to all this, which is. It's it's not entirely clear whether both sides want more transparency in the sense that you do get occasional allegations that there's graft surrounding some of these projects. So um, there are reports now that Malaysian officials are looking into whether some of the funds that were associated with some of the Chinese-backed projects went to um, essentially were, were used as for graft purposes. Um, and, you know, there are other studies that seem to suggest that some of this money gets disproportionately spent on uh, the priorities of the individuals that are in charge in various uh, regions that the Chinese are lending to. So um, if that is the case, uh, you can kind of it's, it's not too hard to see why maybe transparency might just start raising more questions than it actually starts answering about what China is doing in these countries. I mean, can Pakistan and these other Asian countries, can they really afford to cut ties with China and the Chinese money that's flowing into the countries? Well, so that's it's a really interesting question. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. So what I would argue is that this combination of sort of secret deal making for big infrastructure projects, 
um, sometimes on pretty harsh terms. It, it essentially means that the Chinese government is betting on the current leadership in a lot of these developing countries. It's not necessarily sustainable. It's not necessarily even popular. So the danger that they're running into is that when you get a new government, like in Malaysia, um, the government comes in and they say, that, you know, the deal that you struck is not fair. It might even be corrupt. Uh, and so we need to renegotiate terms. Or you get something like, I would say, uh, what seems likely in Pakistan, which which is not necessarily that the new government cuts ties with, with China at all. It's, it's that you get some sort of IMF-involved bailout, and the IMF in turn demands to see wh- what are the terms that you've been lending um, from that you've been receiving money from China on. So um, I think that a bit more transparency is is almost inevitable for the Chinese government at this point. I think it could be quite embarrassing um, when some of the details, if they do come out uh, around the loans around Pakistan. I mean, what we've heard so far sounds certainly very alarming. So I think that will be keenly watched. Um, but that's all we have time for today. So thanks, Chris. That's our show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Una Galani and Chris Bador, and hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Freddie Joyner, and Ben Kellerman. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingnews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. <laughs>